Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hello there. Welcome back to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I feel like it's been so long since we've had an interview episode. And frankly, it actually has because I recorded this a long time ago. But hi, welcome. I am happy to be back. As you heard, if you listened to the January episodes, I'm in this weird transitional space that has me kind of, I don't know, sometimes I'm very efficient and effective and productive. And sometimes I'm very paralyzed and can't get very much done except look at things on social media and save memes. Like that's sometimes all I've got. But I'm back now and I am very excited I'm still not going to tell you yet what the news is for the way that the podcast is going to look different for its fifth year. It's almost year five, dudes. Like this is we've been doing this for a minute and it's time for mama to change things up. So that's what we're going to do. But I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm still going to tease you for just a little while. So before I get to that, you would want to join our Patreon if you are a fan of this podcast I appreciate you so much for listening. And that is wonderful and amazing. And if you have any capacity to give, I know it's a hard time right now, so I totally get it. But if you do have any capacity to give financially to this program, you can donate as little as a dollar a month. And it is so appreciated. You can go to patreon.com and find conversations with a wounded healer. I think it's literally convos with a wounded healer. And you can donate and it's lovely. And there are a couple different tiers. There are things you can get. We've got some old presentations from Head Heart Therapy that they are allowing me to continue to share because now I have transitioned to Head Heart Business Therapy. So if you're following us on Instagram, you're going to see some new branding or on Facebook, all the places, new branding, everything's purple because it's my favorite color. So that's what's happening in my world. One other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into today's wonderful guest is I was on Apple TV last night, which I always forget about Apple TV because they don't have a ton of programming yet. I know they're they're working on it. They got some good stuff. And there's a new show out called Shrinking with Jason something or other. Can't remember his name. He's an actor that if you see him, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. He's been in a ton of stuff. And he plays a therapist who lost his wife. I'm not spoiling anything. He lost his wife to a car accident and he's been grieving and he's trying to sort of figure out how to be a therapist again. And I watched that the beginning of that last night. And recently I watched The Patient with Steve Carell. And at the end of that, I don't want to spoil that, but my thought about The Patient was that it is an allegory for the way that therapists feel, I guess, held hostage by clients sometimes, especially in now that we're in this sort of weird mid post pandemic place. And there's still a lot of high acuity and a lot of demands on therapists. 
But the thing that I told my husband last night as we were watching Shrinking is I said, I think there is something in the larger zeitgeist that is intending to humanize therapists in a new way. And maybe this has happened before and I just wasn't paying as much attention. But now that that's something that I'm really passionate about is that making sure that everybody knows how human therapists are that I'm seeing it everywhere. So if you've watched either of those shows, Shrinking only has three episodes out so far, or at least at the time I'm recording this. But if you've watched any of those shows, I would love to talk about them. And actually, maybe today's guest, she and I can talk about it at some point, but we'll get to that later. Anyway, let me introduce you to today's wonderful guest. Anne Remy is a humanistic therapist, a trauma-sensitive yoga facilitator, a breathwork facilitator, and yoga teacher. Originally from the U.S., Ohio, where I'm from, Anne has lived and traveled in over 70 countries before moving to the U.K. She uses her international experience to inform her practices and to support the decolonization of the health and wellness industry. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Anne, and I think you're going to really like her. So please enjoy my lovely interview with Anne Remy. Hi, Anne. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Feels like it's been a long time coming in a, in some ways. Yeah. And a short time coming in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> and a time. And what is time? What is time? What is time? Well, first, why don't you give your little spiel of who you are and then we'll unpack for listeners how we know each other. Yeah. So my name is Anne Remy. As you can tell by my accent, I'm from the United States, but I live in the UK. So I am a humanistic counseling psychotherapist in the UK. I'm also a TCTSY trauma-sensitive yoga facilitator, a yoga teacher, and a breathwork facilitator. Ooh, I didn't know breathwork too. Yeah, she's got a bag Ooh. of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she does. Okay. Yeah. Someone's been studying over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm a classic uh, over-certificationer. I don't know. There's there's a verb for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. I believe we call it workaholic as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Healaholic. Healaholic. Maybe that's what it there is. There you go. Healaholic. Anyway, so we barely, truly barely know each other, actually. In reality, but we are, I think, two celestial bodies spinning in the same heaven that sort of collide in like many different intersections. Do you want to tell from your angle, like how we come together? Uh, like Ramalama? Yeah. Dong? So we, <laughs> so we know each other because we both worked at the same theater in Ohio. However, we never met until I was living in Chicago and you had already been living there and then found out that you and your musician side of your life play with all of the musicians that I am friends with and that I ran an artist collective with. And then you became a therapist and then I became a therapist many years later. <laughs> Does that cover it? I think that covers it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that does yeah. cover it. Yeah. It's so funny because I've been trying to explain to people like how I know you and I'm like, it's just really complicated and I don't really know her that well, but we're going to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Can't confirm. Well, let's hear 
wherever you would like to begin, what's your therapist origin story? It was foretold as I slowly turn into my mother, to be honest. Um, uh, <laughs> so, is she a therapist? She was licensed as a therapist. I don't think she ever practiced, but her master's is in psychology or psychotherapy. Oh, I didn't know that. And my undergrad is in psychology. And it's kind of something that I always knew I would end up doing, but I wasn't quite ready to do it when I was 22. Who wants a 22-year-old therapist? Not a lot of people, let me tell you. Not a lot of people. And so I moved from Chicago to Taiwan and I lived in Asia for a couple of years and I traveled nonstop. Actually, I lived out of a suitcase for a few years after that. And then I moved to the UK and settled down as much as I've ever settled down and said, now's the time. So I went back into a master's program. And I am interested in talking about the differences because we chatted about this a little bit, the differences in, and it's kind of hard to talk about the differences when we don't, well, you probably know more about training in the U.S. because you did so much research to make sure that you could come back here with a degree, right? I did as much research as Chicago was going to let me do in that I called a bunch of people and they all kind of said, probably it just depends on who you talk to that day. <laughs> so, oh my God. Um, Great. That's It's only my whole life. Yeah. It's no no, no big worries. Deal. So essentially, yeah, I don't know a ton about the process in the United States, except via you and a couple other friends who are therapists. So the UK is, is I mean, I know it obviously better because I've gone through it. I think the main difference that I've noted and that you and I have talked about in the past is the lack of regulation that exists in the UK. So there are certifying boards, the BACP, the British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapy, and the UKCP, which is the United Kingdom Counseling Psychotherapy, something, something similar. Those two are the main certifying boards, but there's no actual rule on who can and cannot be a therapist. So Anybody can just kind of rock up and call themselves a therapist and charge the same thing I charge. It's kind of a buyer beware situation for clients who are seeking therapists. I would say from the listings that I've seen, it's not super common that people are just kind of calling themselves therapists. But what has been interesting is as I went through all of my volunteer placements, which were part of my program. Is that what we would call internships? Uh, Yeah. It's mostly free work in Mm -hmm, existing practices somewhere, usually with not-for-profits. So when I did my placements, what was very interesting to me was meeting other people who were working at the same placement as I was, me in a five-year master's program. And some of them were in three-month, six-month programs that would give them a diploma or a certificate. And I've lived in the UK now for five, almost six years. After six years, I don't quite understand the use of the word diploma here because it can mean bachelor's degree or it can just mean like a piece of paper given for any amount of time spent. So there were people that I was working with who were in three and six month programs. And I want to be really careful here because I, I know that education is 
it's a tricky one, right? Because you can go through 10 years of school and still not be a great therapist. And, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have access to all the right education. And that doesn't mean that they cannot be the type of support that other people need. And some of these people were actually very great counselors. So I think what was surprising to me was it was more like, oh, wow, there are very few rules on this, which is very concerning, obviously, when you're thinking about the public and people looking for therapists. But it did also bring a bit of equitability to who can support and how people can be supported. What was also interesting was that, I don't know about the States, but my master's program didn't require you to have a bachelor's degree. So you could enter the master's program if you had, quote unquote, relevant life experience. Wow. That's pretty common in the UK, actually. And I think that's very cool. Yeah. So for people who don't have a bachelor's degree and didn't choose that path right away, but decide they want to go back, they don't first have to do this four years of bachelor's degree in order to go through the master's program. So I think that's very cool. That's fascinating. Yeah. My class is a mix of people who have different academic histories. And I would say that not one of us is better or worse, which is, you know, an awful way of looking at therapy in general. But no one's academic history is uh, visible or, you know, there's it doesn't matter, really. Yeah, this is something I think about often because I'm a professor in the master's program social work at Loyola, where I went to school. And there's a push right now because so ASWB is like the governing body for social workers. And they're the ones who have the licensure test uh, that we have to take to get the LCSW, which is that that's what makes you able to bill insurance and be a clinical practitioner. And they've already done away with the LSW, which was the one that you take right after you graduate. And apparently the ASWB came out with a report recently and it showed, surprise, surprise, there's bias in the test and it's bias towards white people, right? So there's this push to get rid of the certification test altogether. And interesting. Yes, on one hand, equitability. And on the other hand, how are we going to make sure that people are prepared to be therapists? Because I have really, really struggled watching some of my students who are not prepared. I am trying to support somebody right now who just doesn't have what they need. And I feel I feel like I am stuck then in a bad place because I can see I had a straight up conversation like I need to make sure that you are ready to work with substance use disorders when you leave this class. And if you can't do this assignment and it's definitely not like a learning disability issue, but it's like not having the proper support and training and whatever else it is on the back end. And I can't make that up, right? In one class, I can't bridge that gap. And it sucks. It sucks. I hate the way the system is structured. I don't know how we do it better because I think that it's a privilege to become a therapist, not an entitlement. I think any profession where you are caring for people's lives, whether it be mentally or physically, you better have your shit together. I want to hold therapists to a really high esteem and I'm unfortunately disappointed a lot. That hit in my chest, actually. Um, I really felt that. And it's something that we've actually had a lot of discussions with at my school. And I've had with other therapists in the UK. You know, none of us want to see someone who is questionable when it comes to safety and ethics. And 
It's interesting to hear you say, you know, I want to make sure that you're prepared to work with XYZ because the way that my program is, and my program works a lot more relationally than some of the other programs in the country. Yeah, we'd get a sort of day on, you know, substance abuse and on trauma and on this and on this and on this. Well, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. So the bulk of my teaching has actually been on the relationship. Yeah. And about who I am and how I manage my own shit. And I think the sort of whatever it is, whoever it is that sits down in front of you in the client's chair they can be presenting with something you understand or don't understand, but can you hold that? Right. Can you hold your reactions to that? Can you hold right. them? Yes. I think my program is less concerned about what are you going to do if somebody presenting with an addiction issue sits down in front of you and more, how will you be? Which is terrifying when you're in your first year going, but just tell me what to do if this happens and if this happens. But, you know, now at this point, I'm actually very glad. My supervisor said to me the other day, sometimes it's great if you don't understand what it is they're coming with, because that means you're coming with no expectations, with no loaded information. And you can just kind of sit there and ask the necessary questions to find out what their experience is. So you almost get out of your own way through lack of information. (laughs) That's so vastly different than the social work program. It's all about just facts and things and I am trying to teach the relationality piece. I've heard that there are a handful of schools and there there have got to be more, right? Like I am certainly not the uh, end all be all in like the education system of therapists in the United States of America, but I don't know a lot of programs that are teaching relationally. It's mimicking our education system in general, which is all about teaching for the test, right? All the standardized testing and that doesn't prove any sort of acumen when it comes to who are you in front of this person. For me, when I'm like, I'm having my students do role plays in this class that we're doing right now. And that's what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, stop. What's happening inside of you right now? And they're like, what? What do you mean? I'm thinking about with this. And I'm like, no, you. (laughs) And that's so foreign to them. Yeah. That's very interesting because we sit on couches in class. Oh yeah, there's that. there's not one desk in my school and it's lined in couches and it's not academic in a traditional sense. The dissertations that we do to pass, there's no handwritten test. We do have written assignments throughout the year, but at the very end, I do a big case study. So maybe I should pause for a second and just explain. So it's a five-year master's program that I'm in. Three years into that, I get a diploma, effectively a bachelor's degree in counseling psychotherapy, which is what I've just received. So I'm in the fourth year of the master's program. So I'm a certified therapist. That's another difference. You can practice on a bachelor's degree here. But what I had to do to get the bachelor's degree was very similar to what you had to do to get your master's degree. So what we have to do in order to complete these dissertations is a case study using some of our client work And then we have to do a Viva. So we have to go in front of a panel, play a clip of 
our client work and they ask us questions and they say, what was going on for you in this moment? How do you relate that to the theory that we've learned? Do you think you would change that? Why do you think that was a good intervention? Why do you think that intervention is you? Where are you in this? Who are you? Yeah. So I really get... I love that. It's. I mean, it's terrifying. But that's how you really figure out if somebody is able to be with others or not. And that is the opposite of what we're doing here. Ugh. When we come back to equitability, apart from the fact that to go into therapy in the first place, you know, you have to be able to give up a certain amount of your time and X, Y, Z. Free labor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as far as accessibility for students, I think that that lends itself a lot more to adapting itself to any type of learning need and any type of learning style. Yeah. Because you're just presenting who you are. Yes. And yeah. Okay. I need to like somehow abolish the education system of therapy in the U.S. and start over and do this instead. Couches. Just get rid of the desks and put in couches. <laughs> yeah. Well, now all of my classes are online. So my students are in their beds or in bathrooms and kitchens. Who knows where they are? Do you start with any kind of check-in? I do in my class. Well, we do a little like mindful moment because so I teach the substance use disorder, like the clinical class. And so I sort of model it after the way that I would run a group in a treatment center and have little little mindful things. And it's just the other thing that makes me so angry is there are 14 weeks of class meetings. There's 15 weeks of material And I, of course, pressure myself to make sure I get all the material in. (laughs) So I think but in the groups class that I got saddled with teaching next semester, I am going to do a check in and I think try to run it like an actual group to make it a realistic experience. So we do a check in at the beginning and we also do we call it group process, but it's basically group therapy at the end. Mm-hmm. So our class is a whole day. It's not, you know, I don't mm-hmm. go to an 8 a.m. on Monday yeah. and a 3 p.m. on Tuesday. I'm in class from 12 to 7.30 on Monday. Wow. And there's a lot of like, it's a long day. <laughs> that is a long day. Uh, especially when you're feeling all your feelings, right? Yes. And talking about your feelings and talking about heavy topics. And sometimes at the end of it, I'm like, hobbling back to the train, (laughs) ready to collapse. (laughs) Right. But we do get the sort of group therapy experience. I know more about the people in my class than I do about some people I've known for my entire life. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. How has this changed you? <laughs> I wish you all could see. It hasn't changed me at all. It hasn't changed me at all. That look you gave was uh, so cute. I was perfect from the start yes. and I'm perfect now. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> the amount of self-compassion that I've developed mm. uh, has been huge. Mm. The amount of compassion that I've developed for others has been huge. I am a classic sort of um, workaholic, I suppose. And I disguise it behind taking classes. So it doesn't seem like I'm working. Uh-huh. It's, right. it's for the greater good, right? Mm-hmm. So I've come to understand a lot of the sort of underlying 
issues, right? This has been a lot of self-introspection. I've been in therapy every single week through the duration of this course and even before. And um, is that a requirement for the program? It is, yeah. See? Mm. <laughs> Why are we not doing that here? (laughs) Yeah, but to be fair, not all programs in the UK require that. So, and that's actually one of my like, you should not be doing this if you've never experienced it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I've come to know and love myself in a lot of new ways, which has translated into knowing and loving other people in a lot of new ways. And I think the biggest thing, and I'm coming off the back of a, a week where this has kind of been put to the test, I'm learning to react less from an emotional place and more from a understanding place in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and part of that has been, hmm, yeah, I don't really know where I was going with that. It was uh, fine. <laughs> I just, just went in my sentence. <laughs> Do you know what I'm thinking? I'm really thinking about how helpful it has been and how reparative it has been to have one parent, my mom, who this poor woman has been getting phone calls throughout the duration of this program with me being like, are you sure you didn't do this to me when I was a kid? Or, you know, do you remember when you did that? That was wrong. Or you shouldn't have done that. And bless her heart. She goes, you're probably right. I was dealing with a lot and, but I understand that that's not what you needed in that moment. Wow. Yeah. Hold, it, hold it, on. That, okay, let's just sit with yeah. this for a second. Like, mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm. What an incredible woman your mom is to be able to do that. Cause that's the dream, right? That's what that's every child dream. wants is to be able to say, you did this wrong. And for your parent to say, you're right. And I'm sorry. And mean yeah. it. She means it. And she's, I can't imagine how difficult this has been for her <laughs> to go through. Um, we'll bring her on at some point. <laughs> I, man, I would love that. I would love that. And she does her own, she does uh, like spiritual counseling. She's got her own kind of path with this, but the ability to look at the kids that you love and know that you did things that, you know, weren't perfect and be mm-hmm. able to apologize and accept that has to, mm-hmm. what, what grace, right? Like what grace? And yes. so I've learned from my mom being able to do that, how to be that for my clients. When my clients are yes. like, Hey, yes. you fucked that up or what yep. you just said was wrong or mean, or yep. hopefully not mean, but you know, that's absolutely translated into my ability to be comfortable being an imperfect therapist and getting it wrong, which is so important, right? We need to be able to get it wrong and our clients need us to get it wrong so they can see that everyone's just a human doing the best they can. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the gift of my mom and her attitude through the whole process and how that's translated to my clients. Like it gives me chills to think about that. And something that I wanted to ask you, and this is, this is really personal, but I, because we've only known each other from afar, the way that I have always envisioned your psychic structure internally is that you had a really foundational level of self-love. And of course, I'm always comparing it to myself. I saw you as somebody who had this level of self-love that I never had. And that 
was part of potentially what enabled you to fly so far away, right? Like literally mm-hmm. all of these yeah. different places in the world and and be okay still within yourself. This is what I've made up about you. But no, I love hearing this. It's really interesting to hear how you're perceived by someone who doesn't know you very well. Yeah. I don't know. I was always like rooting for you. And like, I could almost cry now because it's just, it's funny because we're these like I said, celestial bodies that happen to kind of orbit around similar things. And I've always like loved you in such a, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. If you weren't an ocean away, I would give you a big hug for that. That's so, I I mean, like what? um, mm. Nope. Let me pause and just hear that. That was, that was great. That was very affirming. Hmm. So now I will answer to that. <laughs> so I just know when I'm feeling something good, I'm trying to I'm trying to stop yeah. and feel it. Yes. So yes. it's funny because one of my classmates asked me something very similar. We were having a talk about relationships recently. And they said to me, are your parents together? Where are you getting this secure attachment? And I was like, oh, no, my parents split up when I was very young or not very 11. I grew up in a house with a dad who had mental health issues that were not taken care of and a mom who was doing the best she could with that. And I've thought a lot about if we're talking about attachment styles or we're talking about, you know, whatever. I never knew like which dad was coming home. And that kind of gave me these really great survival skills of I'm great in a crisis because I've already anticipated everything that has ever possibly happened. I am great when I don't know what's going on. I'm great in chaos, which is why I did a great job moving abroad and then traveling nonstop for three years. I was averaging one country per week for three years. And this was teaching English? No, this was working for an education technology company. So I was visiting schools. Yeah. So I taught English when I first moved to Taiwan. And then I got this other job that just sent me traveling. And so I did great with that because I've always been on high alert. And I've always been constantly aware of my surroundings. And I didn't know that. I was a year into my therapy program before I realized that I've had chronic stress my entire life. I was like, oh, that's what all these physical symptoms are. That's chronic stress. Girl, what? Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. But having one parent who I never doubted, you know, yeah. I was very secure in my relationship with my mom. And I was very, my mom was very trusting of both me and my brother. And to have one parent who is constantly proud of you and rooting for you. And when I moved, my mom said, I never worried about you. There were a couple places that I went that she was worried about. But apart from that, she said, I always knew you would figure it out. And, you know, from a very young age, she encouraged both of us to use our intuition to follow our gut, to trust ourselves and to believe in ourselves. And that is where that sort of secure attachment and that ability to go so far away comes from. Like, I know my mom is at home. I know my family is still there. They're all rooting for me. There's a whole bunch of people out there who 
really just had my back. My life wouldn't be the same without that. And the ability to have all those adventures and to see the world and report back was absolutely how I paid that forward, right? And now I'm paying it forward through becoming a therapist, which really does feel like a nice full circle moment in a lot of different ways. Yeah. The thing that you said that I think is the special sauce is that your mom trusted you. Oh, yeah. Too. Because I think about my, because my dad also like the identified awful one, right? And and my mom was always the quote unquote good one, but she didn't trust us at all. Not one bit. And it was because she she wanted to protect us from making the mistakes that she had made. And so she did everything she could to try to control what we would do and not do. I imagine the way that you internalized your mom's trust in you, that's what built that foundation of secure attachment and you being able to follow your intuition. But when you're taught to question yourself constantly, which is what I was taught, right? Like everything that was, and especially because we were super duper Christian, that was another layer on top of it, right? That it's like, you know, you can't sin, you can't do this and that. So all your normal urges (laughs) are wrong and bad. I grew up super Catholic, so I completely understand. And that's where I'm at in my therapy right now is unpicking what I'm finding out, like under anything that I internalized from my parents, like the deepest, deepest sort of traumas or messages are religious. Before it's my dad's voice or my mom's voice, it's invisible God's voice. Yeah. So that's where I'm at in my therapy right now is really learning, not learning, just working through a lot of that. So I really feel that unlearning. Yeah. It's, it's, It's a lot of unlearning. One of my classmates told me recently that nobody can hear anything I think. (laughs) I'm 35 years old. And when she said that to me, I went, holy shit, nobody can hear what I think. Because in my head, you know, yeah, God or Santa Claus or, you know, whatever, like, I don't use those two together to insult anybody's religion, but that's really (laughs) how they are to me. It's the same. Mm -hmm. It's one in this. It's the same like, oh, he sees you when you're sleeping. Um, (laughs) So I really feel that with the added layer on top of the religious thing. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. So are you a healer? I, you know, I, (laughs) that little smile just grew in such a beautiful way. Yeah. It's a weird one because I don't know if I'm comfortable with that title yet. To me, that feels like I have something that somebody else doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, The title that I would choose is more like an activator which is not as glamorous or as sexy, but like, and it probably- I like that though. But it's, and it also sounds like a sex toy, doesn't it? Like- It kind (laughs) of does. Yeah, Yeah. so it's maybe not the best term, but the only thing I'm doing is supporting people to activate what's already in them. I am not bestowing any sort of something that I have that somebody else doesn't. I'm really just helping people open up doors that already exist within them. And the only thing I have is some additional training in how to open the door. Right. To me, the feeling of being a healer just implies that 
um, necessary. And I think for some people that. Yeah, I like that activator. Not to throw shade on the title of the podcast. (laughs) But next we get to how do you feel about the term wounded healer? Yeah. So the concept I love, right? Because I think it's what we talked about earlier. It's the very human aspect of who we are. And I think that that sort of tones down the, I have something you don't vibe that I get from the word healer. We're just humans, right? We're all just humans in the room and we can only be ourselves And that means we come with all of our wounds and all of the stuff that hurt and everything that knocked us about, but all our joys as well. It's a celebration, right? We're still here. And I think the term wounded healer really celebrates the fact that shit happens. Like we get hurt, but we're still here and we want to be able to support others hurting as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Do you know your rising sign? I know I'm a Leo. And that's uh, that's all I You're, know. Well, yeah, Leo sun. Okay. I'm curious. The activator thing made me think, what's in your chart where Aries is? We'll figure that out later. As a classic Leo, the only thing I know about myself is that I'm a Leo. And I couldn't tell you what anyone else's star sign means. <laughs> yeah, there you go. On brand. <laughs> I'm sorry. If my friend Laurel ever listens to this because she's done my star chart a million times and she's very good at doing these things. And I, but I couldn't tell you it. It's not, I don't remember. <laughs> it's okay. Sorry, Laurel. Not a requirement. Sorry, Laurel. We appreciate you. The thing that was coming up for me now is wondering the difference in how clients show up in the UK versus how clients show up in the US. Because one of my complaints as of late just in our world in general, not even just clients, but I can now not unsee capitalism everywhere. And the way that it shows up in the therapy room is this desire for linear progress and results in a predictable fashion. It's interesting because in my private practice, I don't struggle with this. Where I did struggle with this is in my placements, my internships. The National Healthcare Service which is the social health care and shout out to social health care. I have lived in two different countries with it and it should absolutely exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm very careful here because I'm not trying to shit on the NHS. One of the things that they don't do as well is mental support. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, based on a lot of the different ways that it's set up, it's a practice by practice thing. It's very different, but standard kind of thing that a lot of people get is six weeks of CBT, right? So Mm -hmm. you go looking for mental health support for any issue and their prescription is here's six weeks of CBT. Maybe (laughs) you're going to get to extend that to 12 weeks, right? Ooh, the paperwork the therapists have to fill out for that is... I briefly worked for a placement that was NHS adjacent. So clients would only get six sessions with me. It wasn't CBT, but they had to fill out a really long form at the beginning rating where they were on a scale of one to 10. At week three, you have to do a check-in to make sure that the numbers are going up and that at the end, there has to be a measurable difference. So quite often the clients that I get coming to my private practice and 
some of my other placements have gone through this and they're like, I don't know, I did six weeks of CBT and I'm not really sure what that did. And to kind of come back to the original conversation, a lot of the CBT counselors hired by the NHS have had very little training. So they kind of come to me being like, this makes no sense. Like I can't score where I'm at on my childhood trauma. So by the time they get to me, I think they're kind of over this, like, I'm looking for a linear progress. I do get people who are like, I don't feel like I'm improving. And that's a conversation we have, right? About what improvement means to them and whatever. And I have a lot of conversations at the beginning to try to mitigate that ever becoming an issue, just because there's something that's already taken the brunt of that for me. So I'm curious what happens for you and how that presents for you. Most of my clients have seen for a really long time. I don't just take new clients from intake anymore. So I'm hearing about it from the people that I supervise at the practice. And it shows up with my clients in a less demonstrative, you know, they're not like, okay, I'm not better. And it's been six weeks. Like I've been with them for many years, but it seems to be this like internalized pressuring of self. Like I'm not better now. Why am I not better? And like you said, if it's a childhood trauma thing, which all of it is for everyone, <laughs> like that's just my orientation. You've developed this in, you know, 30, 40 years. So even in two years, how could you expect that it's all going to unravel and be perfect and fine? Well, there's also something very cultural about this in the United States. And that's one of the things that I've done a lot of is kind of looking at the aspects of my personality that come from the cultural parent. And this level of sort of like, why aren't I better yet? It's built into the constitution, right? In order to build a more perfect union, the word perfect shows up, right? Giving 110%, like everybody in my class makes fun of me because the grading scale is weird here. And I'm like, Tell me the highest grade you're going to give because I need to know what your 100% is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I really hear that in this, like, why aren't I better yet? Like, what's wrong with me? Yes. I think it's, it's not just the United States, but I think it is more pronounced in our culture to be better and always do more and to Mm -hmm. be able to like be at the top of our game and be perfect. Mm -hmm. I felt a, a sadness when I heard you say that too. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Because it's not just an individual thing. It's a systemic thing. Right. I mean, and some schools of thought would critique the fact that I think everybody has trauma. and that Therefore, it's not trauma. And that means it's fucking society. Right. Like the reason that we have so much trauma is because we're not a well society. Yeah. Gabor Mate's new book is about the myth of normal. There it is. Right there. The myth of normal. Yeah. I just finished it this morning, actually. It's very good. And it's it's exactly what it's talking about is that our society is not set up for us to be well. And therefore, yeah, every sorry, everything does come back to trauma, regardless of how great our parents did, because they didn't they're not in a society that's set up to support them. Right. And they weren't okay. No. Right. Nobody was set up for success here. Right, right. And I I think, did you watch um, Stutz on Netflix? Have you heard of this yet? I'm only like 20 minutes into it. So I, I need to rewatch it because there are things, I loved their relationship and I also am kind of 
like looking at the therapist's own trauma and the way that he has become a therapist with all these tools and whatever. But I read a review of that. And and it's funny because it wasn't even a review of the movie. It was basically like just a review of like how our culture is internalizing therapy nowadays. And it's great that now there's no longer the same stigma to go to therapy. But at the same time, now people are throwing around the word gaslight and narcissism and boundaries, right? They're throwing around all of these things, not really knowing what they mean. And it's kind of like this flip to the other side. And we're going to have to go back to a middle space rather than just being in this like, nope, therapy is only for fucked up people or therapies for everybody. And then I'm going to use therapy speak all the time. How about like we be in a middle space where we use it mindfully and with intention? <laughs> I don't have any like fully formed thoughts on that, but it is something, you know, you see it, right? Everyone's triggered and, oh, you're a narcissist and oh, this and oh, this. And one of the the things I- The TikTokization of mental health. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, it's really nice to see people, people are trying, right? Like they Mm -hmm. want something to grab onto. And I really appreciate that. One of the first things I do with my clients is say, all right, so- I'm hearing you say that you think your friend's a narcissist and like, let's park the title for a second because I'm not in the business of diagnosing and whether or not your friend's a narcissist doesn't really matter to our work. What happens is how you're feeling about what your friend is relating to. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I try to just kind of like drop the labels and drop some of the more poppy words, which is a bit annoying because sometimes they are useful and now I can't use them anymore. I know. Um, I know. With the like, efficacy that they once had, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more to be discussed on that topic, I think. Mm. Yeah. And we're coming to the end of the hour. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you really want listeners to know? I have a YouTube that is slowly having videos added to it. And they are free trauma-sensitive yoga videos with varying lengths and there's lots of descriptions that go with them and whatever for people who are interested in trying that out. And it is an actual form of trauma support. And I'm really passionate about making as much mental health and trauma support as equitable and accessible as possible. So everyone is very welcome to visit that YouTube page with the videos on it and see if they're useful to you. And and maybe they're not, and that's okay too. But it's just something that I'm quite passionate about making sure that everything I do is accessible in one way or another to everybody. So, yeah. And how do they find those? It's youtube.com slash wellness. My handle on all things is Spare Room Wellness. So on Instagram, on Facebook, my website is spareroomwellness.com. And it's a beautiful, very colorful website. Yes. Thank you. The woman who designed it, I can take no credit for it. The woman who designed it and the woman who took my photos are both amazing, amazing ladies. Everything's accessible via my website and would love to hear from anybody who felt that anything spoke to them. Even if it's just an email with feedback, I'm, I'm always quite happy to hear from anybody with opinions or thoughts. And yeah, that will change as you start to get more opinions and thoughts. From people. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, I like it. It's, it, for, it now, feels, yes. for now, yeah. it feels like a nice community. Yes. My yes, supervisor yeah. said the same thing. She was like, 
maybe you don't want to give out your email address to everybody. And I was like, yeah, for now, it's fine. I like it. Yeah. She was like, talk to me in 10 years. <laughs> yes. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it's so lovely to spend time with you like this. Yeah, this has been so nice. And it's nice to connect with you. And just here on your own platform, I want to thank you because you've been such a great support to me as I've gone through my therapy program. And you've been such a nice sounding board and having you as a resource and your podcast and your socials as a resource have sometimes helped me feel sane and normal. Oh, good. Yeah. So I really want to thank you for that. I think you're doing something really great here. No, thanks. Well, TBD, what happens next between us? That's right. Thank you for being here. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.